Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Genesis 1.20. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. The sea is a fascinating world of wonder and color. The sea is his. Most people enjoy a trip to the sea, except for the sand that they bring home with them in buckets and in clothing and in their shoes. Some love to sail, ride the surf. There's something attractive about the sea. It's marvelous in many ways. Without the oceans, which cover about three-quarters of the Earth's surface, we would not be able to live. Not only is the sea teeming with living things, but it is also an important part of the water cycle and our oxygen cycle. The sea can be powerful and frightening when it's whipped by strong winds, and even experienced sailors are sometimes terrified. But God has power over the sea. I've asked some people to read for us, and I'll ask you to read loudly. Psalm 95 and verse 5. The sea is his, for it was he who made it. His hands formed the dry land. He made the sea. Psalm 107, verse 23, through and including 25. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. The deeds of the Lord are demonstrated and illustrated in the sea. Psalm 148, verse 7. Even sea creatures, all of the deep, the ocean itself is to give praise and glory to God. Jesus and his disciples were caught in a storm. It's a very familiar passage. Matthew 8, verse 23 through 27. Christ is the creator. He has power over his creation. In Psalm 89, verse 9, in the Old Testament, there is a hint of what he's going to do. Psalm 89, 9. Christ stilled the waves of the sea. Psalm 107, verse 29, again, reflects that. He loves us and uses that love not only in his forgiveness, but reflects the love of redemption in creation. Micah chapter 7 and verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The sins are cast into the depths of the sea. 
The Marianas Trench is not deep enough. His burial of our sins goes even deeper than that. <clears throat> the seas are a marvel that God has created. The world's ocean absorb and store energy from the sunlight, even much more, manifold times more, than land does. The ocean absorbs over one half of solar radiation that reaches the earth. And without the oceans, temperatures would be too extreme to live on the earth. There's a permanent reserve of liquid water on our planet, which is an unlikely and unique occurrence in all of the planets that have been either visited by satellites that we've sent out or that we can detect through the powerful telescopes that are in the air. The solvent characteristic of water makes it possible for all essential nutrients needed by life to be dissolved and water has a clarity so that the photosynthesis of algae, which is so critical to the majority oxygen population on the globe, can be accomplished. Even the temperature. Temperatures are regulated by the currents in the ocean so that the Arctic does not become so cold that it freezes to a solid mass, nor do the equator areas boil by a constant inflow of heat without any cooling effect. Most of our planet's carbon dioxide is dissolved in seawater, being in equilibrium with the atmosphere. The recent addition through the industrial age of large amounts of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere by the burning of fossil fuels has not significantly raised the amount of that gas in the atmosphere. Most of the combustion-derived carbon dioxide has been absorbed by the ocean. And algae in the ocean turns that to what? Oxygen. This is all a result of his intelligent design. It's been said that scientists know more about the surface of the moon than they do about the entire sea. New, wonderfully designed creatures lay hidden in the ocean depths, waiting to be discovered. Within the last five years, many new creatures have been found as we pioneer the sea. We can now explore deeper than ever with specially designed submarines and some of the most bizarre creatures known to man have come to light, especially because some of them have lights of their own. Over 70% of the Earth's surface is covered by water, and it's in this unique environment we have examined some, and only some, of its inhabitants. The great variety of sea life and the ability of these creatures to exist in the wide variety of environments shows that there is an intelligent, thoughtful, sentient being who is our God behind all of these items. Let's look at fish. They're not just for eating. You go to Sam's Club and there's a lovely lady there with a piece of breaded filet. It's wonderful, but they're not just for eating, boys and girls. The form of fish fall into four categories. Some are compressed, flattened from side to side, such as the grouper. Flounders, on the other hand, are just the opposite. They lay on the bottom of the ocean floors and they have their eyes on one side, sort of looking like a Picasso painting. Oh, by the way, if you ever noticed, Fred Flintstone also has his eyes on one side of his head. 
So all of you cartoon aficionados, uh, take note. Uh, there are fish that are streamlined in order to swim swiftly, like the shark. And there are some that are snake-like, like the eels. Those are the four categories. Fish are covered with an incredible array of, of scales. Some are extremely thin and small, like the catfish, eel, trout, and paddlefish. But some are large, like those of the uh, coelacanth. They're almost like armored plates. Scales are an outgrowth of the skin or epidermis of the fish, and they exude a slime. Anybody who's handled fish, and Deb is wrinkling her nose, that slime is important to help fight off fungal infection and to actually help water off predators. Next week, we'll look at a picture of a hagfish, and if you don't know what the hagfish is, you will be delighted. Has anybody ever lived in Korea? Oh, you, you, you know about the hagfish? Uh, and hagfish is actually a bit of a delicacy. And the slime of a hagfish is the delicacy. Look that up, boys and girls. Color, the amazing array of colors that you can see, especially in tropical fish. They advertise their beauty. They're used in mating, but they also reflect the glory of God. Some are designed to blend into their environment by their dull colors. They lay in wait for fish to come by, and then they snag them. If you've ever watched the nature films, it's exciting stuff. The Creator also designed some sea creatures, as we talked about, to produce light. Like miniature Christmas lights, the fish glows or tinkles in the dark ocean depths, and it traps its prey. Exciting stuff. Gills. God designed the fish with gills to remove oxygen from the water. There are tiny capillaries very near the surface of the gills that absorb the oxygen and at the same time expel carbon dioxide. Fish differ in their ways of breathing. Some pump water through their mouth by their gill covers or some swim through the water and force the water through the gills. Hearing. Not long ago, scientists felt that the hearing organs of fish were poorly developed and not served much purpose. However, with the invention of the hydrophone, we realize that the sea is full of sound. And it's not just the, sea, the whales. Whales can be heard up to 2,000 miles away. 2,000 miles away. Amazing. But most fish sounds are Grunts, barks, clicks, or growls. Sight. Fish were designed with incredible wisdom. Oh, excuse me, incredible vision. Most fish can see in color. And most fish, very few fish actually, have eyelids. But most fish do not have eyelids. And bladders. Uh, it's not just people that have bladders that have problems when they get older. But nearly all fish have bladders like sharks, mackerels, flounders, and a few others, they have a swim bladder with an air-filled sac under the backbone, and that helps for buoyancy, and that can be regulated depending on how deep the fish wants to dive. It's amazing, amazing design. All of this is the result of God's creative function. The origin of fish is clear. The fossil record is clear. The first time you find a fish in the fossil record, it is 100% fish. 
This isn't what evolution, evolutionists would expect if evolution were true. According to evolution, there should be abundant fossil evidence showing the transition from invertebrate, no vertebral structure, to a vertebrae. Well, there are problems with evolutionary theories related to ocean life. This is one of the signs that I hate the most. I despise this emblem. I despise this emblem because it shows a callous disregard to our Creator and also to the persecution of the early church. The fish sign with the ichthus, which stood for Jesus Christ, our Savior, excuse me, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, <clears throat> has been held captive by those who believe that Darwinian evolution is true. And so you see this fish with the ichthus replaced by the word Darwin, and then this fish has not only legs, but also feet. People who use this symbol are utterly callous to the fact that the fish symbol was used by persecuted Christians to avoid detection and brutal brutalization during the ages of the early church. And it's a slap in the face to the God who created fish intact on the day of creation. Well, enough of that. How did water-dwelling fish change to become land-dwelling animals in the eyes of the evolutionists? The category of fish thought to be predecessors of land animals uh, or pteropod, tetrapods, four-legged, are called crossoptogerians. Crossoptogerians. Boy, say that four times fast. I can't say it once. This idea, this uh, snakefish, snakehead fish is an example. Uh, they look at animals that have uh, specific parts. For example, a skull with a front and a back part, or pectoral fins with bony elements, or sometimes called lobe fins. According to evolutionists, the crop, top, the crop cross, crossopterygians, that's it, crossopterygians flourished about 370 million years ago, and all were once believed to have become extinct about 80 million years ago, even before the extinction of dinosaurs. Well, boys and girls, there's a problem. And that problem is that they found a fossil. And that fossil is the coelacanth. The coelacanth. And you see the example of the fossil that was found. It has a lobe fin. So instead of a thin fin that has rays, imagine your fingers with webbing in between. Instead of that, it's a lobe fin which has, imagine your hand covered with a fleshly boxing glove. That would be a lobe fin. Well, this creature, the coelacanth fossil, had what appeared to be a lobed fin. Well, there's a problem using the coelacanth as a transitional form. Because in 1938, they found it floating around in the Indian Ocean. And as much as 7,000 miles away. 
and being a tasty treat for the people of the islands who had been fishing it as long as they could remember. So it wasn't an extinct fossil that went extinct 80 million years ago. They were catching it and having lovely barbecues and fish fries for centuries. Evolutionists had claimed that the coelacanth disappeared from fossil evidence when it evolved into animals with legs, feet, and lungs. However, the living specimens do not have half-formed legs or primitive lungs. They are simply regular fish. Regular fish that evolutionists believed became extinct 80 million years ago. We now see that the fish recently caught, like the fish that you see here, the blue coelacanth, is exactly the same as a 350 million year old evolutionary fossil evidence. So they're called living fossils. There's another funny thing. Coelacanths don't walk. They don't walk. All of the while that they have been discovered since 1938 by the scientific community, they have been examined to swim upside down, backwards, even standing on their head. But they can't get these fish to walk. They've tried everything they can. Threats, bribes, treats, nothing. They refuse to walk. And some people say, well, is it possible that the coelacanth has changed? Is it possible that the coelacanth has changed? Well, here's the problem. When you look at the genomes, when you look at the DNA structure of the coelacanth, there is a variety within different types of coelacanth. You see the blue coelacanth up there, top picture, and then you see other types. There are marbled and there are striated coelacanths, different varieties. And there is a genetic variation between. But the difficulty is you can't find DNA evidence within the fossils. There's no DNA evidence to compare. So while there may be variation, there has been no evolution. There has been no change that we can say we have documented within this strain of fish. So you can't really say that the creature has changed positively or negatively. It has not evolved. It has not devolved. It's still around, and it's exactly the same as the fossil evidence. Well, there are problems with transitionary forms. Here's another lovely animal, the tick-tal-lick. Tick-tal-lick. The tick-tal-lick is another transitionary creature that evolutionists believe was one of these lobed fish, again, with the fleshy fins, the thick fins, not the fins that have radius on them, right, that were walking on land. And if you look at this diagram, you'll see that the tiktalik is at the top of this diagram, this picture. 
And you can see the ages. I don't know how well this uh, red pointer will work. But you see the age 360 million years ago. And here's the... The... Uh, oh, gracious, these words. Coelacanth, thank you. The coelacanth. Here's the coelacanth 360 million years ago, which is the same as the one we have today. right? And up here... Around 375, the theory is that the Tiktaalik came into being, and you notice that these legs have little feet on them. Well, it's an interesting theory, but the problem is that while this is held up as an example of a creature that went from being a sea creature to being a land creature, that there is solid evidence to show that it's false. That this picture, which still exists in textbooks today as an illustration of how the fish, and one of the precursors of land-roving four-legged animals, came upon the earth, that this tickleth uh, tick, oh my goodness, tick? Yeah, tick to lick uh, was the example. As a matter of fact, I believe it is uh, Roger Dawkins. Let me see if I can find that quote here. Roger Dawkins uh, said that this was the most uh, important nail in the coffin concerning... Um, here it is. Richard Dawkins, in his latest book, The Greatest Show on Earth, claims Tiktaalik is the perfect missing link. Perfect because it almost exactly splits the difference between fish and amphibian, and perfect because it is missing no longer. Well, there's a problem. There's a problem. And to understand this better, we need to evaluate fish. Here's the fossil evidence of the Tiktaalik. Uh, the media's excitement over Tikalik seems to stem not so much from being able to report a real scientific discovery as being able to discredit the biblical account of creation. In both print and broadcast media in 2006 and 2007, reports of the discovery fossil that you see pictured here, it was hyped as convincing proof that through a random chance process of evolution, Fish sprouted legs, walked out onto the land where they turned into amphibians, reptiles, mammals, and ultimately people. But the media's excitement did not stem so much from being able to report a real scientific discovery as being able to discredit the biblical account of creation. A front page article in the New York Times, for example, hailed Tikalik as the powerful rebuttal to religious creationists who hold a literal biblical view on the origins and development of life. Well, let's evaluate. Let's evaluate this. First, there are a lot of fish. To evaluate the claims that there are fossil fish with legs that walked up on water to take up permanent residence on land, one needs to understand something about fish, tetrapods, which are limbed vertebrates, including humans, legs, and what is required anatomically to walk and swim. So, if we look at that, first, there are approximately 25,000 species of living fish that have been identified, with 200 to 300 new species identified, discovered, not evolved, 
every year. Fish comprise fully half of all known vertebrates. Some experts claim that there was once nearly a million species of fish. It appears that over time we have lost a lot of species and retained relatively few. But losing thousands of species is hardly evolution, it's extinction. So we need to consider, well, how do we understand fish? How are they categorized? Well, there are two main types. The jawless fish, known as placoderms, like the hagfish, and lampreys, and then the jawed fish, which are all the rest. A.S. Romer in Vertebrae Paleontology, which you have a copy of his quote there, said this, the common ancestor of bony fish groups is unknown. Most evolutionists would still hold, and your textbook would still say, that bony fish came from cartilaginous fish. A.S. Romer, who is an extremely well-renowned paleontologist and expert in vertebral studies, said this, placoderms, those cartilaginous fish, pose a deep problem for evolution and that evolution would be better without them. The origin of bony fishes is a dramatically sudden one. As we said earlier, when you look in the evolutionary fossil record, all of a sudden, you find fish. Fish with bones, fish with scales, fish with tails and fins. There's no intermediate form. The jawed fish, in turn, are divided into two groups, cartilaginous fish, such as sharks and rays, that have a skeleton made of flexible cartilage, and a much more numerous bony fish. So, many of the so-called transitional forms have become greatly disputed, discovered like the coelacanth or dismissed. And the tictilic has been propped up as the savior of the evolutionary paradigm. But we have to ask, how soon will it be before tictilic is abandoned forever? Evolutionists believe that it took about 100 million years for invertebrates, animals with no bones, no backbones, to evolve into vertebrates, animals with backbones. However, again, there is no compelling fossil evidence that documents this purported major and unambiguous transition. This is a very important paragraph. During the embryologic development of vertebrates, so as a vertebral animal develops throughout its gestation process, most bones develop first as cartilage models that are later replaced by bone. Newborns are a little bit more flexible than us old folks, okay? Following the dictates of the embryonic recapitulation myth, again, there's a myth out there called the embryonic recapitulation, it would be attractive for evolutionists to propose that cartilaginous fish evolved into bony fish, but most evolutionists consider the cartilaginous fish to be far too specialized to have been the ancestors or precursors of the bony fish. And that's where we go into our rabbit trail. Our rabbit trail is specifically a fraud. The embryonic recapitulation myth, 
and that is the phrase ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, the development of the creature during the gestational period is supposed to mirror and mimic the evolutionary past of the creature. How many of you have seen this diagram? This is a very common diagram that is still inside of science curricula and textbook. It is a complete fraud. What you have in this diagram is you have pictures of various species. So here you have cartilaginous creatures, and over to the right you have man. You see things such as the turtle. You see birds here. And the idea, Mr. Ernst Haeckel, a German scientist, was that he noticed similarities for example, gill or pharyngeal slits in all of these developments. Therefore, he said, hey, if you have gills or pharyngeal slits that develop into these other creatures, therefore, you must have a background, even though you're human, that shows that at one time you shared the same genetic or phylogenetic pathway as these lower creatures. Does anybody know the problem with these pictures? They're pencil drawings? They are. Yeah. Well, the other problem is this. He doctored the drawings. He doctored the drawings to fit his presupposition. And yet you'll find this picture still in modern textbooks. Yes, Kathy? They don't have any fossil records either. No, you can't find evidence. The, the transitionary monsters are hopeful monsters. They don't exist. As I talked about before, Stephen Jay Gould, the Harvard professor, used the hopeful monster theory, you know, the punctuated equilibrium theory, where all of a sudden, boom, you have a new creature exist in the fossil record, which much more likely mirrors creation, that there are kinds that all existed in history. So, let's go back to evaluating, shall we? Let's go back to evaluating. Bony fish are far, without, without comparison, the most numerous of all the fish, comprising about 24,000 living uh, species, they have a wonderful variety of forms, but they all have gills for breathing, paired pectoral fins, paired pelvic fins, and a caudal or a tail fin. <clears throat> Bony fish are divided into two groups. They're divided into the lobe fin fish that we talked about earlier, the fleshy pads, and then the ray fin fish, the fish that have the rays that go through and then there's webbing between. Both have fins made of bony rays, but the lobe fin fish have fin rays mounted on a short fleshy stalk supported by successive segments of bones. And the way they're attached to the animal itself, you see the example up in the upper uh, right-hand corner of this diagram, those are called the so-called lung fish that are again supposed to be transitionary forms. The creatures on the bottom show the difference between 
a fin fish on the left and a lobe fish, the coelacanth, on the right. So, these different fish have different appendages and they are totally, radically different from each other. As a result, you know, we have the tickalick as described by that diagram up above. That's an artist's conception of what the tickalick looked like. <clears throat> the problem is, the truth is, that there are many living fish that are air breathers. So that bladder that we talked about did not evolve into a lung. There are many fish that are air breathers. You may have air breathing fish in your home. If you've ever had an aquarium that had a paradise fish, a beta, or gourami, those are air breathing fish. Why are, at the, are they at the top of the water moving their mouths? They're not looking for food, they're air breathing fish. They don't have lungs, they still have gills, but they're air breathing fish. If you keep them underwater totally and immobile, they drown. They die from asphyxiation. They're not getting oxygen. Evolutionists are not even in agreement on whether lungs evolved before gills, as proposed. Again, we've looked at the quote by uh, Alfred Romer. Even the sort of walking that lungfish engage in, it's not uncommon among living species. Many fish are known to pull themselves along on their bellies with the help of pectoral fins on mud flats or even dry land. I called my son and I was talking with him. He said, oh, you mean mud skippers. Mud skippers can actually move faster than some humans can run. They probably can run, move along faster than I. I don't run anymore. So <laughs> definitely going to move faster than me. Indeed, some of the larger species not only go faster than an average person can run, but there's a climbing perch that is even seen climbing in trees. But guess what, boys and girls? They're still fish. And they're still existing today. So Tikalik was supposed to come to the rescue, but the problem is the fins and limbs. The pectoral fins of the Tikalik are not legs. They're not attached to a pelvic girdle. The tetrapods, and you and I, boys and girls, I have my legs attached to my child-bearing hips. All right? And that's what all tetrapods have. They have the limbs attached to a pelvic girdle toward the end of the body. The limbs of tetrapods have characteristic features. These unique features meet the special demands of walking on land. It's significant that the earliest true tetrapods, recognized by evolutions, have all of the distinguishing features of tetrapod limbs and, how, limbs and how they are attached so that they are clearly capable of walking on land. The structural differences between the tetrapod leg and the fish fin is easily understood when we realize the buoyant density of water is about a thousand times greater than that of air. Don't you all feel much lighter when you get in the water? There's a reason why 
people exercise in pools. Their weight is taken off of their legs. Again, this is an incredible design. So Richard Dawkins may think that Tickalick was the perfect missing link, but it's a fish. There's no evidence to declare otherwise. Matter of fact, if you look at this picture, this bit of a uh, limestone fossil, you can see, perhaps poorly, that there are imprints. And the imprints are the imprints of a tetrapod, a four-legged creature. Here's one, another one here, here, here. That was walking across this bit of limestone when it was still soft enough to make impressions. So, like a lizard, it was walking in typical fashion. And close examination of these prints when compared to the, stony, uh, the, the bony appendages show that it was a fully formed tetrapod. It was not a fin. It was fully a reptilian or amphibian creature. Here are some of the conclusions that evolutionary paleontologists make. This evidence forces a radical reassessment of the timing, ecology, and environmental setting of the fish tetrapod transition as well as the completeness of the body fossil record. Another one. This evidence will cause a significant reappraisal of our understanding of tetrapod origins. Again, these samples could lead to significant shifts in our knowledge of the timing and ecological setting of early tetrapod evolution. Again, we thought we'd pinned down the origin of limb tetrapods. We have to rethink the whole thing. Again, that's surprising, but this is what the fossil evidence tells us. Guess we have to change our opinion. Again, these results force us to reconsider our whole picture of the transition from fish to land. All scientists will come to the evidence with their own beliefs, biases, and vested interests. Those who have dedicated their lives and careers to the standard fish to tetrapod story will not be enthused about the implications of these finds. They will be reluctant to change, especially since they have nothing with which to replace it. There's an even bigger problem. The bigger problem is going from an animal without a backbone to a backbone. Animals without backbones are called invertebrates, jellyfish. In evolutionary theory that you probably were taught in high school, college, maybe elementary school, the precursor of fish thought to be invertebrates, like a jellyfish. The jellyfish 
precursor, or the jellyfish type precursor, went into two directions, vertebrae encased in an exoskeleton, like that delicious lobster you see up there, or a vertebrae that was inside of the flesh. So you either have an exoskeleton or an endoskeleton, both from a jellyfish-type precursor. Anybody see a problem here? When I was growing up, 50s and 60s, <clears throat> there were all sorts of marvelous ideas about how this thing happened and how wonderful radiation helped the evolutionary process. I mean, gracious, Spider-Man could be bit by a radioactive spider and look at the wonders he could do, right? Because of the wonders of radiation. But the problem is, and it's been proven time and time again, radiation does not cause beneficial mutations. And it does not cause beneficial mutations that can be recreated through the procreative act of these animals. So, unless you think that some of these animals could turn inside out in their transitionary forms, and you have that much of an active imagination, this concept is in real trouble. Conclusion. What is our conclusion? As Bible-believing Christians, we must be very cautious of evolutionary claims. In the next months and years, there will doubtless be further claims in the popular media of irrefutable proofs of evolution and, more importantly, proofs against the biblical account of creation. The popular media, as with tax-supported zoos, science museums, and public schools, are often zealous supporters of the quasi-scientific religion of materialism. However, few reporters, teachers, or laymen have ever read the original scientific reports upon which grandiose evolutionary schemes are based. Moreover, these reports are often convoluted, conflicting, and couched in unprovable assumptions that make evolutionary claims difficult to evaluate even for those who do examine the original scientific papers. Well, boys and girls, you've just seen another miracle. I finished before the end of the class. And another miracle, I have seen no one go to sleep, <laughs> for which I'm thankful. Questions, observations, refutations, concerns. Yes, Kathy. One thing that I read on, on these 
Right. So the mutations are not beneficial. The probability is that the creature will pass away before it's able to pass on the newly uh, prescribed genetic code. Yeah, good observation. What one thing do you bring away? I've asked everybody to consider one thing that you bring away from each class. You know, we're, we're covering a lot of material here. Someone said it was biology 301. So not 101, 301. What one thing can you bring away from this as you think about, you know, answering or talking to people who may be ensconced in evolutionary thought? Friends and neighbors, loved ones that may have been spoon-fed evolution during their elementary, high school, college careers. What are you taking away? It's, it's a good question. Uh, Warren asks, what is the percentage of schools, universities that would be open to um, the creation model rather than the evolutionary model? And I would have to say, Warren, that number would be in the single digits. But God is still sovereign. Yes. That's great, and we do have that opportunity to you know, influence others and to, as you said, in a winsome way. There are wonderful materials out there. Um, I do encourage you uh, to look at Answers in Genesis. If you have children or grandchildren uh, that you're thinking about, hey, how can we equip them? Go, there's some wonderful materials, and I do recommend you uh, search them out. We have time for, yes. It is a challenge, you're absolutely right. But again, thankfully, there are good resources. And I'm going to close with 
that's with every lesson. Uh, this is not uh, from my fertile imagination. I am a prolific and uh, professed um, plagiarist, uh, and the sources that I use are on the bottom of each of our lessons. Uh, if you're listening to this online, aside from that, if you have any questions, you can contact me. I'll be happy to give you specific references for any of these materials. Any uh, request above five references, of course, is $10 a reference. Uh, let's close with prayer, and we'll join uh, with God's people. Father, we thank you and praise you for this time. We ask that you would cause us to revel, to rejoice, to be jubilant over your truth. Lord, that we would not be so wise as to become fools, that we would not exchange the glory of God for the glory of creation, that instead we would look at creation and see your amazing creative design, your vast intelligence, your love of colors and variety, and appreciate, Lord, as we look at creation, as we look at even as the leaves turn color and fall from the trees, Lord, we would see your faithfulness revealed in the seasons that we can count on you, that you are reliable, that your word is true and able to be trusted. Thank you for this time. Be with us as we gather with your people to worship you in spirit and in truth as we celebrate the table of our Lord Jesus. And we praise you for this time in his name. Amen. Amen.